Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas. Today is The Stacks book club discussion of the autobiography of Malcolm X as told to Alex Haley. We've brought back author, professor, activist, TV host, and owner of Uncle Bobby's Coffee and Books, Mark Lamont Hill. He's going to help us break down this American classic. There are no spoilers on today's episode, so feel free to enjoy this episode even if you haven't read the book just yet. Be sure to listen all the way to the end of today's episode to find out our pick for the November book club. Each week, I like to take a little time to say thank you to the Stacks Pack. Those are the people who contribute a small amount to the Stacks through Patreon to help make this podcast a reality. In exchange for the generosity, they earn perks like our virtual book club and shout outs on the show. If you want to join the Stacks Pack and help support this podcast, head to patreon.com slash the Stacks. Today, I'd like to say an extra special thank you to Moira Folsom, Liz Dustin, Sarah Coquiat, Mackenzie Green, Antonia Adams, Hope Wilkes, Sarah Murphy Trailer, Elizabeth Fisher, Melissa Jones, and Teresa Mara LaCroix. Thank you all so much. All right, now it's time for the Stacks Book Club Conversation on the Autobiography of Malcolm X. All right, everybody, I am back again with author, professor, thinker, activist, all around, oh, bookseller, hello, all around wonderful human, Mark Lamont Hill. Mark, welcome back to the Stacks. Thank you for having me. Yo, I love this place. I'm so I'm so happy. Um, we're going to talk today for the Stacks Book Club about the autobiography of Malcolm X as told to Alex Haley. Um, okay, so we always start here. This is a reread for both you and I, but I, we always start with this. So what did you think of the book? Oh. Um, I, th- I thought that when I first read the autobiography of Malcolm X, I, I, it, I read it and it changed my life. I haven't been the same, honestly, since, um, and it changed the way I thought it changed what I believed. It changed my faith. It changed my expectations. Um, uh, without a drop of hyperbole the book probably saved my life um Hmm. but at the very least it made it a life far more worth living than it 
ever possibly could have been prior to reading it. And so how old were you when you first read it? Uh, that's a good question. I was, I was a teenager or preteen. I was like either I was I was in high school. It was early high school, ninth grade. Okay. Um, and uh, and I read it. Then I read it again. Then of course I watched the movie like everybody else did. And then I went back and read it again. And every time I returned to the autobiography of Malcolm X, I returned to it differently. Um, but there's still that piece of magic at the core of it that that never goes away for me. Yeah, I, um, so the first time I allegedly read it, which I didn't read it, I was assigned to me in my African-American history class in high school. Ah. And I just like wasn't reading books that looked long in high school. Like I just wasn't doing that, you know, like just wasn't happening. So did you not read read it at all or did you just like flip through it? I think I read a few pages and, you know, I've got to be honest, the first time I actually read it and then the first time I fake read it in high school, I thought the beginning was really slow. This time reading it, the beginning did not feel slow to me at all. And I was so confused. Like, I thought the beginning was really slow when I was younger. So I read it for real when I was about 22. And I had a similar experience of like, yo, this whole, like, it made me feel like this whole shit that I've been taught is just not at all what the shit was. Like, right. and, and I mean that about like who Malcolm X was, but also what he was talking about and what it meant to be black. And like, it was super profound for me, um, in that way that it really shifted my thinking. Um, yeah. and something that you and I have in common is that our parents are both kind of of a similar generation. My dad, or at least my father, my dad was born in 1935. Mm. And so this book, the first time I read it, not so much, but this time it really made me understand my dad in a totally different way. Cause my mom is white and my dad is black. And sometimes my dad would be on some like real crazy race shit when I was younger. And I'd be like, that, there's no racism. Like, you know, this is like in the nineties mm. and it was sort of like not appropriate to be young and care about racism. I feel like at least, at least where I grew up and at least kind of in the way that race was talked about And so I remember always thinking my dad was on some like crazy conspiracy type shit, like on on little shit too, like not even big things. I can't think of an example, but in rereading this book this time, I was like, this makes so much more sense. Like this, this, my dad made more sense to me this time. He was in the front of my mind in reading it this time. Whereas the first time I read it, I think I was much more thinking about like, Ah, uh, history is a lie, and like my teachers are assholes. You know, like it was definitely a more of a personal rebellion the first time I read it. Mm, I could see that. I could see that. For me, the first time was like everything was going off for me. Mm. All, all every all thing, everything was clicking. Mm. It was like, oh wait, this is racist. Oh wait, how did how did I not see this before? Oh my god, I need to learn more about that. And so for me, um. It just it just it just spun everything around. But again, it wasn't assigned to me, so right. I was allowed to. I was unlike you, who kind of was forced into it. I was allowed to kind of walk into the book when I needed it. My right. brother, who's two years older than me, my 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 my, my next oldest brother was um, reading all kinds of stuff, and he was a five percenter. So he was you know part of you know he was reading the black books. He was he was you know doing all kinds of stuff. So I think he told me to read it, and he. He knew more than I did. He knew more than I did. So um, I read it because he told me to read it, you know. But mm. once I once I read it, it was it was I was 
it was it was a wrap for me. Right. I mean, when I finished it in, when in my twenties, the only thing I could think about was I was such an asshole as a teenager. I can't believe Mr. <laughs> Green assigned this incredible book, and I was like, it's too long. The print is too small. Because like truly, that's what you think of when you're sixteen or seventeen. Oh hell yeah! I didn't turn away like, a lot of great books like that. I was like, no, this is going to be a hard no for me. And the class, the African-American history class was an elective in high school. So it wasn't like my regular history and it wasn't my regular English class. I was like, I'm not actually going to, I'm not reading this. So I think I read some sections and was like, I can pass the test or whatever. I don't even remember there being a test, but I passed the class. So I must have been something. Right, you're fine. Uh, <laughs> I feel like it, it's hard to talk about this book, I think. In, in a short amount of time because there's so much there. And again, it's a long book. The print is small. It covers a lot of history. It covers a person who who had so many changes. I mean, he he refers to his life as my whole life is a chronology of changes. And I think, you know, never was that more true about a public figure that I can... I, last night when I was preparing for this interview, I was thinking, who else have we seen publicly change their ideology and I really I really couldn't think of anybody except for one person and I don't want to compare these people but I do think that there's something interesting in the per I don't know can you well, before I tell you who I thought of can you think of anybody who's publicly changed their ideology hmm this, like Malcolm this, X this drastically I mean, I'm assuming it's someone who went like hard conservative or something um and I'm assuming it's a black person. Who who could it be? Um, who? No, who? Okay. And I again, I'm going to just disclaim the shit out of this. Malcolm X is one of my personal heroes. I think he is a wonderful person. I would, I mean, I have only just the best feelings towards him. But the person that came to my mind, and it's a different change of ideology. He changed in a less sincere way, is Donald Trump. Oh, interesting. 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 Like who he, who, what he quote unquote believed in. 20, 30 years ago. Sure, he was still a racist, but he had a whole different set of beliefs and public persona and this whole thing. And I just, that was the, per him and then also Kimberly Guilfoyle, but she's like so minor compared, you know, like it almost felt silly to say that, but right. I don't know. That's like, people don't, I guess the point is that people don't change publicly like this. I think, I think that's in, 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 right. I, I think Donald Trump, and the other thing is, Donald Trump doesn't have a worldview, right? So, so Donald Trump sort of says what he says to get what he wants, and if that, if his, if what he wants changes, um, then he'll say whatever. But, but, and what makes that sharply different than Malcolm, to your point, right, is that Malcolm was always animated by sincerity, and right. so Malcolm, Malcolm radically changed his worldview in certain ways in certain ways i think that gets overstated sometimes but but he, he but he radically changed his worldview in in public right Do you know how hard it is to be that didactic to be that strident to be that zealous about a and then a year later you're like you know i was wrong about a y'all but i really think b is right now and i really need y'all to know how important b is and then you know at, that is a level of humility and, and sincerity and Malcolm said that you know he said I'll be driven by my you know I'll be, I want to be remembered for my sincerity right that Malcolm right. understood that even he said even if I'm wrong it, it, I'm I'm sincere and I'll right. keep going and, and and for me that that's part of what makes Malcolm so admirable to me so yes. so 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 beautiful uh, a spirit and person to me not perfect by any stretch but 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 extraordinary no. 
Because there's some pureness in that. There's something pure. It's almost like, I don't know, like a ni- ni- being naive a little bit, right? That like sure. that sincerity is is the thing that matters, you know? Like that that being wrong or right is secondary to believing fully in what you say, you know? And I think that I think that that is an approach and that's obviously his approach. I don't know. It sort of takes me to the idea of like impact and intent. You know, we talk about that a lot. It's like your intent is less important than your impact. And, you know, Malcolm X sort of was the true believer of my intent is the thing. Right. I want to be remembered for my intent. And I think, you know, I guess there's criticism. There could be a lot of, you know, there was a lot of criticism. Of course. Um, of course. I mean, yeah. I think what makes this book so interesting, too, is that he's not just changing course in some ways. Um, it's that Malcolm is writing the book with Alex Haley, of course, as he's changing course. As he's going. Right. And, and he didn't go back and change. So so, so the book gets, you know, he meets a Haley in like 59, uh, with his Playboy interview. And, and, and Alex Haley is just taken by, by Malcolm, um, who he, he thinks he's the most interesting story. And, and I think he is in a lot of ways. I mean, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad creates the nation or, or certainly takes, takes leadership of the nation. Uh, after Masfar Muhammad leaves in uh, in 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 um, you know three and a half years after he arrives in in 1930, uh, in July of 1930, and there there are few people as extraordinary as Elijah Muhammad in terms of the building of something. Yeah, Elijah Muhammad built an organization that produces Malcolm X, Louis Farrakhan, Muhammad Ali. I mean, like j- just just the people that it produced alone, right? You know, mm-hmm. but the story is Malcolm for Alex it Haley, is. and for most Americans, right? I mean, Malcolm, the nation takes it, take catches its wings in a lot of ways in the national imagination, national black imagination. After Malcolm gets out of prison in '52 and rises very quickly to to the helm uh, as a national spokesperson, Elijah Muhammad is the is, is is the mind and the spirit, but but it's Malcolm who's who, who who's this thing, and. When, he, when Alex finally decides to write this book with Malcolm in 63, Malcolm wants this to be a book with a little bit about him and a whole lot about the nation, right? He wants this to be like St. Augustine, like confessions, right? He wants this to be like, I'm going to tell this story and you're going to hear how my life got changed. Like a black person in church testifying. I was mm-hmm. at the bottom and then I met the Lord and, and you know, I, Jesus saved me and then I was converted, right? And now look at me now, right? To testify to the goodness of God. That was kind of the, the premise, right, is that Elijah Muhammad's program right. saved him. But from 1963, when he begins, until February 21st, 1965, when Malcolm is, is killed, Malcolm has a crisis of conscience, a crisis right. of faith, better put, right? I mean, he, he, by the end, he's, he's questioning Elijah Muhammad his, as leader, right? He's gone from the nation. He's at war with the nation. Rhetorically, I'm talking about. At, right. at least rhetorically. His belief that Master Farah Muhammad is a law or a God in person is completely shattered. Right. right. And his belief about the ontological evil of white people. He still thinks white people are the devil. Right. But, but it's not an ontological condition anymore. He doesn't think they're born that way. He, now he's talking about right. white supremacy. Now he's talking about white privilege. Right. Now he's talking about structural racism. 
Right. It, all this stuff is uh, so. So can you imagine writing a book? I mean, it, can you? I mean, it's 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 stunning to think about that, right? Like to start a book in '63 where you believe in this person and this organization and this faith, and then by '65 your faith is, is has shifted. You're still Muslim, but your faith, is, your, your theology has shifted. Your faith in the leader has shifted. Your goals for people have shifted. Who you want to work with has shifted. You're out of the organization. They're trying to kill you. And the last you believe, right, with, with, I don't want to get into the politics of that, but at least you believe that they're after you as, as well as the FBI and the CIA and whomever else. Right, and, and, right. And, and now you, you die before you can finish the book. But, but even before you died, you, you didn't go back and change the beginning. So you're still telling the same story. So he's still talking about, and I don't mean to go off on it, but it's just such a fascinating thing to me to, to think about what it means to tell that story in light of what you know is going to happen. And, and one of the deals Alex Haley had with Malcolm was that after a chapter was done, that was it. They wouldn't go back and edit it. That once he said it was done, it was done. So, I mean, I'm sure he could have amended that maybe given the circumstances, yeah. but there's still something about not changing it. And Haley's telling Malcolm, no, make it a suspense, make it a thriller, right? Let... Let right. this unfold in a way where people watch you change in real time. It's like it's like a reality show before a reality show. We're watching right. Malcolm transform in front of us. Yo, that's if that ain't humility, right? And discipline, right? Because and bravery, yeah. Because it's not like he's it's not like he's writing this book and changing as a person in like you said in private. Like he's one of the most hated figures in the civil rights movement you know like he's one of those people that is vilified everything he says everything he does no matter what he says or does and so this idea that he is willing to say these things and have a have a document that is changing as he's or is documenting him as he's changing and learning and growing I mean that is if that's not bravery if that's not you know a willingness to just like get canceled, right? Right. <laughs> like to use right. an anachronistic term, like he really was just like fuck it, like and that's that sincerity. I really truly believe this. And if you want to hate me for it, just know that you're really hating who I am because this is what I really and truly believe and this is, you know, like that right. is I have episodes of this podcast that seven people listen to and I'm like, I want to edit that out. <laughs> and it, like, and we're talking, and we're talking about Sula. Do you know what I mean? Like, right. that's how, that's how weak I, <laughs> I am as a person that I'm like listening to it two weeks later, editing, being like, I wonder if the show will still make sense if I just cut out this whole 30 minute section. Cause I said something dumb, I'm the same you way. know? And like, yeah. I, it's just, it's, he's unbelievable. Yeah, uh, they're just and and uh, I don't even know. I mean, I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with this, but yeah. No, <laughs> it, 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 it's 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 one of the most beautiful things about the book. I mean, Malcolm takes us in a lot of places. I mean, obviously he starts um with his childhood, and we're left with these powerful memories of who he is, and and I think hearing and seeing, witnessing sort of on the page Malcolm's trauma is also um one of the most important things um right. that we that we that we have to think about right is that Malcolm right. is traumatized early by the clan traumatized early by the death of his father mm-hmm. traumatized by his mother's mental illness and those pieces of Malcolm give us hints give us hints of who he's going to become or who he could become 
right? Because there's a way that him growing up in the Garvey tradition um, makes sense that he would end up in the Nation of Islam, right? Right. But there's also a way that losing your father and your mother being away could make sense that you end up as a street hustler. Right. So, so it's, you know, but there's a way that, that hearing those early stories gives us a kind of a, a, an interesting framework and backdrop to who Malcolm is going to become or who Malcolm could become. And then as, as he becomes all of those things, whether it's Detroit Red, whether it's Satan, whether it's, you know, all, you know, all these things, uh, Malcolm Little, Detroit Red, Satan, uh, 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 Malcolm X, El Hajj Malik Shabazz, all those stages are, are key. And, and watching him take us through all of those things, um, it, it's powerful to me. Um, I never lose sight of the fact, though, that even as Malcolm is taking us through these stages, it's still Malcolm's version of the world. Right. And, you know, later on, Manning Marable, of course, wrote the wonderful biography on Malcolm. So good. So good. Malcolm, A Life of Reinvention. And there's a new book coming out on Malcolm uh, that's already long listed for the... I know. I haven't read it yet. Have you read it? No, I haven't gotten a copy. It doesn't come out for another two weeks. So I'm trying to get my hands on it, but I'm like, it's long listed for for the National Book Award. ain't even out yet. That's a beautiful thing. Um... It's called the dead. The dead are arising, and yeah. it's by Les Payne. And, and, just for those of you who don't know what we're talking about. Yeah, and I'm sorry, it's a little inside baseball, right? And and mm-hmm. and um, I'm I'm like excited to read it uh, to know where it goes. But these wonderful biographies, they they show us that some everything that Malcolm said wasn't true. Now, you know, right. and but again, like whose autobiography is whose memoir is right? You know, it's not that Malcolm is telling extravagant lies. It just goes from you know maybe you weren't the biggest hustler on the block, maybe you weren't. You know what I mean? You know, maybe you weren't doing big time hustles. Maybe you were stealing a little bit out the back of the spot and et cetera, et cetera. But there are ways that Malcolm tells a story that either he's part of it is because Malcolm is trying to convince us that the nation's program saved his life. So the more low Malcolm is and, you know, then then the then the more uh, extraordinary the conversion narrative becomes. So so there's something really powerful and beautiful about that as well. Um, and I and I. But 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 I'm also I'm also struck I'm struck. Wait, anyway, let me ask you because because I could nerd out about this book by myself all the time. Okay. I'm I'm happy to be in conversation. <laughs> what um what's, what what strikes you about the book? What, what what are some of the things that hit you the most? So so one of the things I, the when in rereading this, the thing that moved me the most it actually brought tears to my eyes. I really like welled up in a way, and you know, reading this in 2020 with the coronavirus and this like resurgence of of Black Lives Matter in a way that had kind of been dormant for the last three or four years to, to the larger public, right? One of the things that really struck me was his trip to Mecca. Mm. And in my first reading of the book, I sort of, I'd seen the movie before I ever read the book, so I knew it was going to happen. And I sort of kind of glossed over that. And this time reading it, I was so moved by him experiencing what he felt was a lack of racism and a respect from white people or people who we would consider white in America, I think is how he kind of phrases it. And that was so moving to me. Just this feel, and I'm sure you've experienced it in some, in some capacity. I know I've experienced it in some capacity, but when someone speaks to you and they are interested in your thoughts and your opinions outside of race, right. Or when someone is, is, you know, deferential to you because they respect your mind or, or something you've created or whatever that, whatever it is to you in your heart as a black American, 
I've felt glimpses or like moments of that. But reading him experiencing that in his own words, that was just like, it felt really redemptive and kind of healing to me in a way that I don't remember that section at all in my first read. So that's one of the things that was huge. And then the other thing that I was thinking so much about, which is sort of what you're talking about, but a little bit different, is this idea of legacy and how do we receive him if he had lived? Right. Yeah, if he had lived yeah, yeah. like because like, for example, I, you know, it's obvious comparison sort of Louis Farrakhan as someone who, you know, he took over the nation of Islam, um, not directly after Elijah Muhammad, but sh- shortly Soon thereafter. after. Yeah. And um, and he's lived a long life and he's a super controversial figure. And obviously his politics and his thinking has hasn't changed in the same way that we we saw that Malcolm X was moving in this other direction. But I just wonder, like, how is Malcolm X's legacy different if he was if he had been allowed to live and if he had and if he hadn't started on this path of changing like what if he had been assassinated in 1964 before he went to mecca yeah right like what's that legacy so i had a lot of like what if thinking in this reading no it's it's a fascinating thought um you know i'm i'm always skeptical so, so a couple of things. One, yeah, I, I think that the burden of living is its own thing. Martyrdom, in many ways, can sweep away contradictions. Sure. You know, who is king if he dies in seventy-eight instead of sixty-eight? Right. Right. You know, right. Is he Jesse Jackson? Right. Right. Who's Jesse Jackson if, if God forbid, he had been assassinated in nineteen eighty-five, one year after his first presidential campaign, or eighty-nine after his right. second one? Right. right. You know, we'd be, we we may be celebrating Jesse Jackson Day, right? I mean, there's right. a way that you know, the longer you live, the more room and time there is for the contradictions to emerge, for the mistakes to be made. You know, Malcolm dies at 39, King dies at 39. You know, there's no space or room for that. You know, in the same, in, at least not in the same way. Right. Um, so, so I, I think that's. I think you're absolutely right. Um, you know, what 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 would Malcolm or King, for example, be saying about LGBT? issues right now right well i was thinking what is the attica prison uprising if malcolm x is on the list of people who goes in and negotiates for them that's a pretty right that's a pretty that example like the thing that was like in that sort of same time period that yeah. he obviously would have been on the Farrakhan, list right and they asked for farrakhan right so so he right. certainly would have been there right malcolm would have been there. right or like what are what's malcolm x or martin luther king um for Rodney King, what are where are they in the nineties? Like what is what are these moments that are like huge moments for black America? Right. With these people as our leaders alive as opposed to the idea of them, right? Because then now anyone can say, well, Malcolm X would have felt this way at Black Lives Matter. Or, you know, we constantly hear white people telling black people, this isn't peaceful. Martin Luther King would be embarrassed for you. Ah. You know, like right. so I feel like what what like uh we were robbed, just robbed of these people. But in the same way, also, I'm sure that they maybe wouldn't be res- like. I'm sure people would be like, "Shut the fuck up!" Right? Like, and, and they may have said know. some, but and they may have said some, some, some stuff worthy of that, right? So, which is why I right. mentioned the LGBT stuff because who knows, right? How they right. respond to that, right? I mean, um, there's a way that you don't know. I mean, King, you know, before he dies, um, in succeeding, is having very different positions on Palestine than he had right. a few years prior. You know, and he and, and 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 the more we read, the more we realize he was had a he had a much more progressive position on that than people think he did. 
So again, what would he, would he get canceled? Right? Um, would he get silenced? Would, would, would Malcolm get canceled or silenced on on a particular issue around war or around whatever? Right? Is there a moment where his where his his expression of Islamic faith contradicts with his understanding of of queer identity? Right? Is there a moment where he gets caught? You know what I mean? We don't know, but but I right. but I think that that that's in some ways you know what martyrdom allows for. You get right. robbed of life, which is huge, but you also get delivered in some ways from the critique and the scrutiny. Of, of, of living a long time. The fact that you can be a Nelson Mandela and live as long as he did and still remain loved and admired is a testimony, um, is a right. testament to something, as John Lewis, same thing. But I, I'll tell you right. something. You know, the, the, the Malcolm story, and, and just to take it back to the book for a second, is interesting to me because, so, so Malcolm, again, is telling a, a narrative that sometimes gets flattened when we, when we look at his actual sort of experiences. Malcolm goes to, to Mecca in 1959. Uh, Malcolm travels to the Middle East in 1959. He travels to Africa in 1959. And then in the book, sort of the book focuses on that last trip to Mecca in, at the end of 64, where he makes Hajj and, and before being killed in February of, of, of the following year. Why is that important? Well, Malcolm saw white Muslims before. Sure. Malcolm was in Gaza in, 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 in 59. Uh, you know, Malcolm was in Egypt in, in 59 and, not, and, and during that kind of height of Gamal Abdel Nasser's rule of Egypt. He you know, um, Malcolm was received as an elder, as as, as, an, as an elder statesman, the second time he, when he's making these trips in '64. Right. But, but my point is, there's a way that I think, and, and this is what happens when we read Baldwin's "Go Tell It On." I'm, I'm sorry, uh, Baldwin's um, uh, "The Fire Next Time" as like the only Baldwin text, right? It, because sure. of how it ends. There's a way that we can frame almost these Disney type narratives of these people. So so what what's happened with Malcolm is that now it becomes Malcolm was and this happens in Islam all the time, right? Is that you know the way Muslims and the way mainstream Sunni orthodox Muslims or quote unquote orthodox Muslims talk about Malcolm is Malcolm was Muslim. Malcolm was bad Muslim. Malcolm goes to Mecca, sees white people, becomes right Muslim, becomes good Muslim. And that becomes the narrative. And again white people become the kind of predicate for becoming the proper type of Muslim. And there's a way that Malcolm sells that right. story in in in, hmm. the, in the autobiography. This isn't a critique of you or anybody else's reading of Malcolm. It's what Malcolm wanted us to think at the, at that moment for a very particular purpose, right? right? Malcolm was pushing back against the nation of Islam's right. theology and its theodicy and all the other stuff that comes along with um, being a member of the nation of Islam at, at a time where he was no longer going to be a member of the nation of Islam for whatever reason. That's another story for another time. But but it's it's very interesting to see that in light of what we actually know about Malcolm. And, and, and so for me, I love the autobiography and I love the fact that Malcolm was willing to grow and change. And, but I often feel like we empty out some of the nuance of it. For example, in that last chapter, which by the way, is a compilation from Malcolm's letters. You know, one of the things that made, the, Malcolm was on the road so much that Alex Haley couldn't even sit down for some of the interviews. Right. Alex was literally reading the newspapers and, and and saying, "Oh, Malcolm was here this day," and then writing and helping to write based on what the newspaper said Malcolm did, or what the newspaper quoted Malcolm as saying. And so, when you read all these letters from Mecca that, that Malcolm is sending back home, you know this is all this all becomes part of the story. But Malcolm had a very complicated understanding of race. I, I think you're right, and 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 when Malcolm goes to Mecca. He's saying, wait a minute, these white people are different. So maybe 
this nation of Islam theology that says that the white, the, 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 who is the question number two in nation of Islam theology is who is the devil, right? Or who is the colored man? The colored man is the Caucasian, the white man, the devil, the skunk of the planet Earth. He's saying, well, wait a, wait a minute. Okay, white people aren't the devil by birth. This isn't a spiritual claim anymore. I no longer believe in the theology of, you know, Yakub grafting white devils on the island of Pilon or Patmos. No, but I do believe that there's something about American whiteness that makes y'all act crazy, mm. right? And that maybe outside the, the context of America, where whiteness, where, well, this, these same bodies might be somewhere else, but it's whiteness is a construct, right? And, and, right. and that we can get beyond, and, and that's the nuance and complexity that Malcolm was getting at. But they empty that, and they make it seem like Malcolm saw white people, and suddenly the skies opened up. And that now Malcolm, right. you know, and, and I feel like we don't do, I think we do Malcolm a disservice if we don't appreciate how beautiful a text that is and how important a text that is to Malcolm. But there's right. some, but then we got to, and this is the last thing I'll say about this, but then we got to wrestle with Malcolm's contradictions. Because when Malcolm is in that prison cell, and this is where the movie does something different too, when Malcolm is in that prison cell, right around 1950, Malcolm goes to prison in 46. There's some, he's there from 46 to 52. So somewhere, it's not entirely clear from his biographers when he converts because, you know, but, but he's at least getting the knowledge around 48, 49. And there's a moment where he's in prostration, um, and or, or he's 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 what they call sejda, right? He's 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 in a position where he's on his knees and he's you know, and he looks up, and he sees Master Farad Muhammad. He sees the man that the Nation of Islam says is God in the person. Now in the movie it's Elijah Muhammad in the cell and he starts talking right. to him, but in the book, it's Master Farad Muhammad. This is the fun, This is the most fundamental claim of the nation of Islam that differentiates it from mainstream Islam. Right? Is that God does not is, is that God came in the person in a physical body, right? Which is against traditional right. Islamic thought. And this body, Master Farad Muhammad, who's on the, who's 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 in the nation of Islam papers, all the other stuff, is basically it looks like a white man. Right. And the nation of Islam says he's biracial by its own theology. So. Malcolm at one point believes this and he tells us that he saw him in his prison cell before ever seeing him in real life. Right. It, it would be like if I've never met you before, Tracy, and then I say I had a vision in the Uber ride over here and saw her. And, it, and when I got on the, the, the Google chat, it was the same face. Right. right. I Once I say that, I'm out there. So for him, by the right. end of the book, to not believe that this man is God, well, then how did you see him right. in your cell before right. ever seeing a picture right. of him? So, so I'm not trying to say this to show Malcolm up, because again, I still think it, it, it's it's rather to say that Malcolm believed what he believed. Malcolm, I don't think Malcolm was lying. Right. I think Malcolm wanted to believe that until he didn't. Right. But now you got to wrestle right. with that contradiction. But he never get we never we never could because he died. Right. But I think I actually think that that story is is. I think that what you're saying, right, that he created this story, and either it happened to him and. And therefore he saw God and God really was, or he was bullshitting us to tell a better story. Right. I think that both of those things are <laughs> sort of in line with what, with what and who Malcolm X was. I think both versions totally work. And I think like one of the things you asked me, what struck me about the book. One of the things that I took notes on this time through was that the book reads like a movie. I mean, mm-hmm. it is written like like young boy has it all father's murdered mother goes crazy separated from family 
nice white people help him. Ends up going like it's like the whole story is it is like yeah. I don't know, a coming of age tale in every single way. And I think, of course, that's by design. You have one of the great orators, right, of Malcolm X, and then you have one of our great storytellers. I mean, Alex Haley wrote Roots. Like, that's a fucking story, you know? Like, so I think that this book, what it does is it tells a really great story. It is a beautiful piece of literature in that sense, of storytelling, of oral tradition, whatever you want to call it. I've read Manning Marable's book. That is an incredible book of history and research. And that is a text that is about, you know, you talked last time about great biographies. That's a great biography, right? And like that these two things, the subject is the same, but they're different, you know, Um, in the same sort of way that like, uh, what was that play? Go Tell It on the Mountain. Is that what it's called? Like that, that it was about uh, Martin Luther King and oh, you talking about mountaintop? You talking about mountaintop? Mountain, mountaintop, mountaintop. Yeah. Sorry, um, talking about mountaintop. Yes, that that play is this great storytelling version of sort of the truth, right? And that there, while it's an autobiography, you know, Malcolm X has a point of view about himself, you know, and like to it would be naive of any reader to think that anything that he said or wrote is actually the unbiased truth if there is such a thing which you know we could talk about that for hours which it isn't but this book it has a point of view and he's trying to do something with it to his audience he's trying to affect some sort of reaction from his audience in the telling of his story which I think is why the book is so powerful and incredible is that I have to believe that he was thinking about his audience you know? I think he absolutely was thinking. I think he was thinking. I think he's thinking a couple of things. One, remember, he had to get permission from the Honorable Elijah Muhammad to do this book at first. Right. right um, and right. so at first, I think he's thinking about his fidelity to the organization. Right. Sure. And, and, and in the first 10, 15 meetings, I, 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 Alex Haley's like frustrated because he's like, all you keep talking about is Elijah Muhammad and the nation. This right. book is about you, not the nation, which pisses Malcolm off. So then Malcolm right. is like, not not really giving uh, uh, Alex Haley what Alex Haley needs. Alex Haley is, is is annoying Malcolm, and then he says, "Tell me about your mother." Right. And it's only at the moment where he tells him about his mother that Malcolm becomes a a, a, a person and not a kind of robot for the nation. In Alex Haley's uh, estimation, that's the first thing. The second thing is you're right. Malcolm is all Malcolm is a classic American storyteller. Malcolm will tell you some shit that's so compelling, even if it ain't true. The house Negro and the field Negro, right, is he tells that story with such sincerity and passion and conviction that we start to believe that that's actually how things went, right? Right. I mean, still to this day, to this day, believe that because of his narrative right. around that. And it just became true, even though it's not, right? So, so there's a way that Malcolm knew his audience and knew what his audience needed to hear, how they needed to hear it. And Malcolm knew that telling certain... Now, there are details in the autobiography that I think Malcolm either got wrong by accident Right. Um, for example, Malcolm tells the story of how the insurance company refused to pay his mother um, mm-hmm. after his father got killed on the tr- run over by a train, mm-hmm. etc. He, he, as Manning Marable shows, like he did, she did get paid. She got paid regularly for for years after he died. Um, I don't know if Malcolm's doing that for effect. I don't know if Malcolm got the story mixed up. Right. I don't know if Malcolm's mama lied to him. I mean, who knows? Right. Right. Right, and he was young too. And he was young. That's what I'm saying. So I, I don't know. I'm not assuming that Malcolm. I'm, I'm assuming the best. I'm giving Malcolm the best read. Right. And just saying, you know, there's a gap between what he said and what happened. I don't know how or why. Um, but then there's stuff where it's like, okay, Malcolm, you know you ain't do that much hustling, right? Did, did, <laughs> in, in, like, 
that wasn't really. But but you go to any jail in America, everybody every, everybody was was big meat and Larry Hoover. Nobody says, yeah, I sold dime bags on the corner. You know what I mean? Everybody acted like they right. was the biggest dope dealer in the world, right? right? So so that's not uncommon. But for Malcolm again, it was like, well, if I'm the biggest drug dealer in the world, I'm not, or the biggest hustler in the world, the biggest numbers runner in the world, the biggest pimp in the world, then when I get saved from this depravity from the honorable Elijah Muhammad, it makes the story that much better. And, right. And he knows his audience. I don't know if this is true for you, but this is the the kind of storytelling, at least for me, that is the stuff that also really reminded me of my dad. Like him and his friends would get together and it's like, it's like, you know, the one upmanship. It's yep. like these telling these stories. It's the black oral tradition. Like that is a super powerful tool. And I think that that's part of why I'm saying like, I think that he was super aware of his audience because he knows if he's like, yes, I sold a few pieces of drug paraphernalia on the <laughs> streets and it wasn't even really Harlem. I was actually on 80th. Like, you know, like I feel like people would be like, okay, this book is whack. And right. he knew that. And I think that like, you know, and and it's important to his legacy and to who he was is that he also was beloved by poor black folks. Yes. You know, like he was beloved by by black folks outside of the South. You know, like I think that that is important, too, because we think so much of the civil rights movement as being like bus boycott, you know, like Medgar Evers, uh, Martin Luther King. It's so Southern. It's like the voting. It's like all this stuff. But he was beloved by the people who didn't get to go to Morehouse, right? Like by the folks who were coming out of jail and all, all this stuff. And I think that that's why the story is told in that way where it's a lot of hyperbole yeah. because that's how black folks talk. I mean, that is the oral tradition. That is how so many of our stories have been passed on. Um, let's take a quick break. Let's take a quick pause. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. 
See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one size fits all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. Okay. I want to transition slightly to kind of bring in some of the work that you do. So your book, we didn't really talk about this at all, but your book, Nobody, uh, came out in 2016? Yep. 15? 16, yep. 16. And um, it it's, oh my God, it's so good, you guys. We, I can't even believe we didn't talk about it last time because it's so good and I had like a thousand questions about it, but oh, fuck you. it. Um, go read it. Uh, it's about Ferguson and Flint and the way that uh, it's basically about the ways that the state has caused violence against black folks, essentially, and disenfranchised folks. Um, but but the way I, what I want to bring into this conversation is in the civil rights era, there were a lot of leaders, a lot of people who were the people that we know and associate with that time. And when we look at what's going on now in America and the Black Lives Matter movement and other activists and activist groups, it's more or less sort of leaderless. And I think some of it's, of course, by design. But I'm curious what you think as someone who studied this stuff. Obviously, you know a ton about Malcolm X and a ton about what's going on now what you think we gain or lose from these leaderless movements or these movements that are not associated with people. And I'll just tack on that a lot of what's going on now has been, and in the past, but especially now, has been led by Black women and femme and non-gender conforming folks. And so I'm curious if any, like, I don't know, it's a lot of words that I'm saying, but I am getting at a question, but I'm sorry, I just want you to talk about it. Yeah, no, I, and and I think you're 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 moving toward the kind of analysis that I would have offered, which is that it's not a leaderless movement as much as it is a leaderful movement, right? That that sure. there's no singular leader, but that that's kind of the beauty of this moment. Um, and there's never been a single leader, right? It's just that, right? Of course, th- there there have been people who have been positioned as the leaders, these kind of messianic type figures, and they've almost always been cisgendered heterosexual men. And almost almost always Christian. And so I think that the moment we're in now is so much more powerful at the level of leadership because I think we have an opportunity to to not have a singular figure. We have an opportunity, which means that there's not a single person that they can kill. It means there's not a single person who could be infiltrated or co-opted. But it also means that we can imagine a more democratic, small d, um, kind of process for for f- arriving at solutions for div- for figuring out the direction of the movement. It's not a single person moving us in a direction. Um, right. The fact that those leaders that we're seeing are younger is great. The fact that they're queer is great. The fact that they're women is great. The fact that they're trans is great. The fact that they're gender nonconforming is great. The fact that they're uh, uh, undocumented is great. Like 
all these things matter to me and they should matter to us because I think we need those voices, not just in the crowd filling up space, but at the front leading uh, at, at various moments, but not in a way that, that that's vertical, you know, and hierarchical, but horizontal. So we have multiple leaders uh, across across the board. Um, I think that that is um, the ideal kind of framework that we see. Um, and so, you know, when we have Malcolm and, and Martin, it's not that we don't have a Baird Rustin. It's not that we don't have a Fannie Lou Hamer. It's 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 that you know their positionalities are going to be understood differently vis-a-vis um, their power, their identity, you know, um, you know, um, and their desire in some in, in some ways um, to to be in that particular space. Their politics, um, all of it matters. And, and and I think at this juncture, I'm sort of excited about the fact that we have Black Lives Matter founded by three women of color, and then we have Dream Defenders down in Florida with, you know, Philip Agnew and Ahmed Abuzned. I, I love the fact that we have a bunch of grassroots organizations all around the country. I love the fact that we have, you know, um, you know, movements everywhere from Chicago um, to, you know, um, to Philadelphia, to, to Texas, uh, where people are um, pushing back against the status quo uh, with all the tools that they have. And all the leadership uh, styles uh, that are necessary, but all, all but the but the kind of diversity um, to occupy those leadership positions and styles, uh, all of that is just dope to me, man. And and I'm I, I couldn't be happier um, about the moment that we're about the moment that we're in. Oh, I love that. That is exci- that excites me because I feel like I'm excited by this moment and the people and the groups and and all the different. Um, this the space that's being created for other people who haven't historically been allowed to be in the forefront to now get to stand at the front and take ownership of so much that's going on. But I also feel like I feel nervous about that because I see the ways that the what they're trying to say has been, you know, hindered because there's no quote unquote leaders. Right. And and that's hard. That's hard. I mean, that's just hard for me. I don't know. It makes me. It makes me frustrated. So it, it's nice to hear that you think that it's a. It's a good thing too. For sure. Because um, I think that you're smart, much smarter <laughs> than me, and you've studied this much more. You know, sometimes it's like you have a feeling maybe in your gut, but you don't know that it's right or that it's wrong. Um, you touched on this about you know mostly in the past it's been um, Christian. Christian leadership, people who are Christian. Um, do you feel any type of way about the lack of religion in this moment, in these movements, in this moment? I do feel a way. I feel great. You do? You okay. know, when Malcolm X um, dies, when he gives that, that the press conference before he dies, uh, he announces his return home. He announces his willingness to work with leaders of all sorts. Um, but he also starts two organizations, Muslim Mosque Incorporated, which is the religious arm of what he's doing, but then the organization of African American unity, right? Modeled after the organization of African unity in what, you know, in West Africa, Malcolm was making a divide between who he was as a religious person and who he was, um, as a, um, as a political figure. Um, 
whereas for the nation, it was bound. They were bound up in one another, right? It, it, it was a religious movement, um, and their indictment of America and, and critiques of the system were vis-a-vis scripture, and their and their and their, uh, their their solution, their proposed solutions to the problems of the world were, um, were, were were rooted in religion to some extent, right? I mean, the whole "this is the end of days" kind of narrative of that the most quite frankly, Christian organizations do, um, the nation was doing. Malcolm moved away from that. That's powerful. When Malcolm is giving, you know, his speech, his speech, some of his most important speeches, whether it's Ballad of Bullet, of course, Message to the Grassroots, which is what I'm thinking of, uh, he's distancing himself from the religious stuff. He understands that there's a place for religion and faith, and, and Malcolm is no less Muslim the day he dies than... than than, when, than the day he gets out of prison in 52. Um, but Malcolm understood the need for that distinction. Partly because mm-hmm. um, he, he saw the world in, in different terms. He had, he had a deeper political analysis, right? His critiques of capitalism couldn't... couldn't the Scripture couldn't help fully wrap, help him wrap his mind around his critique of, say, capitalism or, or, or colonialism or, you know, or imperialism. But there's also a way that he understood that he was going to be alienating people um, over religious differences, and he no longer wanted to do that. Um, and so, for me at this moment, I don't, I don't want a, a, a resistance movement that does, that does not include the church or the mosque or the synagogue. Sure, but they can no longer be the center of life because they're not the center of black life. There was a moment where the black church was the center of black life, and so of course it made sense right. for the, the church to be the epicenter of all this stuff. But it's not. Um, but there's also a way that, unfortunately, our leaders had to come through that sort of brook of fire of the church in order to be sort of validated as leaders, you know, so it's like you, you had to, you had to talk like a preacher, be a preacher, be ordained like as a preacher in order for people to be like, all right, he's our leader. And now it's like, well, no, there's other ways to do this. When we were on on the streets of Ferguson in 2014, it was the first time where it was like, oh, wait, the church isn't at the center of this. There were still moral Mondays and we still have people like Reverend Sekou or, or Reverend Barber, who are brilliant, you know, radical theologians, right? But there's also a way that they're not the whole story or the center of the story anymore, and that's what I find value. And I saw some preachers show up and get booed on the streets of Ferguson, not because they didn't have respect for preachers or the church, but because they, it was like, you got to come with something other than that. This, the church is not the center anymore. Right. So for me, the move away from that is a powerful one, and it's an extraordinary one, a necessary one. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm with you as someone who's also not very religious. It feels more inclusive to me. Like if it was centered in the church now, I don't know how I would feel about that. I think it would feel alienating in a way that I would not be wild about. But, you know, Um, I do. I feel like we got to talk about white people. Sure. Because I feel like Malcolm X spends a lot of his time talking about white people and you know, you asked me before what things stuck out to me. And I think that how timeless some of the stuff <laughs> he has to say about white people timeless is, is a good in word this for book. It. Like, it's like, yo, are you actually writing this book today? Because, you know, I, I like he's talking about things that don't didn't have words. He didn't have words for them. But like, white fragility pops into mind right he the way he describes the way what the media has done to the things that he said um you know 
there's this great story that he tells, I think it comes up three different times in the book, twice with him and then once with Alex Haley in that, in that epilogue where he talks about the white girl who shows up to the ma, uh, to the restaurant in Harlem and is like, how can I join you? And he's like, you can't. And then he feels sort of bad about it later. But that story, and he says, you know, white people want to join black organizations just because they want to be absolved of their racism through proximity to blackness. Yep. You know, like, and, and I hear this all the time. You know, I, there are people that I know who who were in the Peace Corps in the '60s and '70s who want to tell me they're not racist because they were in the Peace, Peace Corps, Corps and they 60s. could tolerate being <laughs> around black people for two years. Um, but some of that stuff, his analysis on white people and what they do, that shit just felt like so spot on. Still, which is infuriating to me in a lot of ways right. because i'm be, like it shouldn't be the spot on like, 55 this, years later yeah like we're, we're, it's so much later how are you guys still doing this um I, you know and he has the line that he says if the truth condemns america then she stands condemned right he says that in the book like and that's sort of i guess how i think i'm feeling right now in this moment you know we talked about george floyd last time in this moment of like white people discovering racism or like discover like this like exhausting narrative of white people are just learning that black people had it bad and Amer- like that whole thing that line of if the truth condemns america then she stands condemned i think that i'm probably not alone that i think a lot of black people are probably feeling that way at this point it's like look i'm not gonna tell it to you in another nice way like if you're offended by this then shit like you did some offensive shit i can't i, I just can't so i don't know there's yeah. no question there either. No, no, no. I'm I done mean, with questions. I just am talking to you. No, no, no. <laughs> this is great. I, 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 when, when Martin Luther King dies, he dies in April, April 4th of 68. And, and that, 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 that day that he's killed, um, he, in just a few days, would be writing, um, or giving, rather, a, a sermon called Why America, um, Why America May Be Going to Hell. Mm. Um. There's a way that these leaders had fundamental critiques of America and really began to doubt its re- its redeemability. Mm-hmm. I think Malcolm begins there, mm-hmm. and then has to think about what's possible. King begins with the poss- with the with the possibility that America is salvageable, right? That's mm-hmm. where he begins, but loses faith. You know, it says I've begun to suspect that most whites are unconscious racists. Um, he begins to wonder what you can do with an empire, and he turns to Harry Belafonte before he dies and says, "Harry, I, 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 I fear that I may have integrated my people into a burning house." Hmm. So I'm saying that to say, there's a way that I think um, Malcolm begins with the condemnation of America. I mean, that, that's the that's at the root, in some ways, of Nation of Islam theology, right? Or, or, or the argument, right, is that we are in the last days, right? That we, that this is a Babylon. This is um, a, a place that is not redeemable. But but when but when but in this revelations moment, something new will come, right? Um, the, the, our faith is not in America, but in our ability to produce something different. And in some ways, that's where King ultimately lands, right? Is that our faith is not in America, but our ability to produce something different. Um, but that radical imagination is what we need 
that's it, it's the radical imagination and that's where unfortunately both malcolm and martin and others you know fall short i think not in terms of their radical imagination but their 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 failure to fully lean on the radical imaginations of black women who i mm. think have in so many ways um offered the most ambitious and robust freedom dreams not just for america and that's just for, for for black folk before America. And that's for America before the world. Um, so when you have the, the Kombahi uh, River Collective, for example, you know, they're not just calling for gender justice. They're not just calling for liberation of women. They're not just calling for an end of sexism or patriarchy or male chauvinism, whatever the language was at the moment. They're calling for internationalism. They're calling for an end to racism. They're calling... Uh, for an end to third world exploitation, they're 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 forcing America to they're forcing us to reimagine something beyond this place. Um, when Angela Davis uh, or Maryam Akaba or, or or Ruth Gilmore, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, telling us you know to not think of warmer and fuzzier prisons, but to dream of a world without prisons, that's a more ambitious freedom dream, right? You know, um, and it's an inclusive one. Black women never dreamed about freedom just for themselves. Right. And and in, as Combe, he said, you know, in, in a lot of ways, like, the only way, for, once black women are free, then everybody will be free. Right. It, but until then, no one is. And so I, I say that to say that when Malcolm, Malcolm, Malcolm was speaking to the, the condemnation of America, saying if the truth, the truth is America is condemnable at the core. But, but, there, was a, but there was another truth that Malcolm was wrestling with at the same time, which was that the people had the capacity to reshape and reimagine and reproduce something much grander, much more fair and just. And what that looked like, how we got there, I think is what Malcolm is working through in in his last days on this planet, right? Because now he has a new conception of what the global human family looks like. Um, He now has a broader theoretical toolkit, right? So he, he has a very specific kind of language to think about neocolonialism. He has a specific language to think about um, imperialism. He has a specific language to think about white supremacy. Um, he has a specific language to have uh, a critique of capitalism and to call for something else. Um, and he has models, right? That's why he's in Egypt. That's why he's in Ghana. That's why, you know, he's 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 looking to Cuba. Uh, it's because he, he, he understands that in order to change this world, he also needs some functional models and, and allies and solidarity. And I think Malcolm is getting there. And I think that's, I mean, for me, that's, that, that that's what makes Malcolm from one of the towering figures of the 20th century. Um, because he didn't just stand and, and condemn America. He wasn't just, he wasn't just uh, sort of yelling in the wilderness, although that's enough. That would have been enough. Mm-hmm. That would have been a life worth living. Mm-hmm. Um, it's that he was committed to rebuilding something different in his right. place. Right. I mean, I also feel like, I mean, yes, to all of that. And I feel like he gave black people who maybe felt forgotten or left behind or whatever, or, and, and, you know, the black people of his time, but also black people now like me as a 22 year old or whatever, he gave us autonomy and power over 
our lives, I feel like. Um, he, I, I, at least for me, I know for sure. I felt for the first time that I, that I didn't need to love white people, mm. right? Or like that I didn't mm. need them. And I mean that in the greater, broader picture of white people. Obviously, my mother is white and I love her dearly. You know, I have a whole white family. So I'm not talking about specific white humans. But that he gave us like power. He explained the hypocrisy of what what we knew, you know, to use a phrase that everyone uses now. He kind of shed light on the gaslighting, right? Like he, he called out the hypocrisy in a way that felt so real and true and like he wasn't bullshitting us at all you know like he at all he was like look i'm just gonna tell you how i see it and this takes us back to where we started the sincerity of it all he really believed it and he believed that we needed to know it and that we needed to be told it and we needed to understand it and we needed to embrace it and we needed to like carry it forward and i mean at a time where people weren't doing that in that same, necessarily in that same way, or on that same scale, I guess, is probably more accurate. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Um, and so, you know, the overall, I'm going back to that question you asked me, what was my takeaway? The overall takeaway of this book, from the first time I read it, and now this second reading, and having seen the movie multiple times, the overall takeaway is that he empowered Black people in a way that is still empowering 50 55 tomorrow it'll be 55 years the book was published october 29th 1965 eight months and eight days after malcolm was killed it's just it's just incredible i mean we didn't talk at all about his assassination and i don't particularly want to um but for people who are interested in that there's all sorts of stuff you could read about theories and there's a documentary on netflix i think and there's all sorts of stuff but to me many of my listeners know that's the least interesting part of the story to me. Um, I, I just, I, I like, I like true crime books when I know <laughs> what happened. I know who did it. Like I'm the least interested in the whodunit. I'm the most interested in, in everything before. Right. Um, before we get out of here, I have two questions. One, is there anything else that you want to touch on or talk about, about this book that you feel is important that we say? Well, I, I think Malcolm as reader, right? As, as You know, mm. this book is about, this is a conversion story in so many ways. Again, classic kind of Augustinian conversion narrative, confessional conversion, all of it. But Malcolm's conversion comes from two things, love and reading. Mm. Malcolm is loved by his sister, Ella. He's loved by his mother. He's loved you know, um, by uh, brother uh, Bim- Bimbry. He-, he calls him Bimby in the book, but in real life his name was actually Bimbry. Um, you know, these people came to him and helped to convert him, right? They, I mean, his sister obviously loved him even long, long before he-, he was a member of the Nation of Islam, but they also became members and, and converted, right? And and I think what-, what gets lost in the movie on Malcolm is the amount, the role that women played in his life, his sisters, his mother, mm-hmm. Uh, who was a Garveyite internationalist herself, right? She wasn't just there. It's like Winnie Mandela. She wasn't just there, right? Right. Um, these are these are brilliant political activists and strategists and theorists uh, at play here. 
Um, same thing with Du Bois, right? Um, so there's that. Um, I think this is a story about love. Um, it's also a story about reading. Right. Malcolm goes into the prison and reads the entire dictionary. Word for word. He started with Aardvark and got busy. Right? <laughs> Malcolm also read every book the library could all he read philosophy, history, literature. Malcolm was so widely read and so and and, and so much of it was self taught. You know, Malcolm switched prisons a couple times to get more access to education programs. Malcolm read and the Nation of Islam itself it's about reading. Elijah Muhammad was given books to read by Master Farad Muhammad. Right? Um so so this is this is a tradition of deep reading. Right. Malcolm's life was changed by books because even to the extent that the Nation of Islam converted him, they wait, they placed their bet on the fact that they could verify everything they were saying through the books that Malcolm was reading. So so right. so, so even the conversion only happens because of the books Malcolm is able to read to to aver the claims that they're making. So for me, there's no Malcolm X if there's no books. Sure. So the fact that Malcolm now gets to write a book that saves our lives after reading books that saved his, to me, is just a beautiful, a beautiful, beautiful um, cycle and outcome to an extraordinary journey. Ugh, that's so good. Okay. My last thing that I always talk about, which we're actually not going to talk about, I have a different question. I'm, I'm really mixing it up with you. Oh, good. Uh, normally we talk about the title and the cover, but I sort of feel like there's not a lot to say about those two things necessarily because there's so many versions of the book. And I think the autobiography of Malcolm X is pretty clear what the book's about. So instead I'm going to ask you this very personal question, which is did you and uncle Bobby ever talk about this book? We never did. I wasn't in a place. If we did, I don't remember, but I I don't believe we did. because I feel like I'd remember that. You know, again, my uncle Bobby was, you know, he was he was battling cancer while I was in high school and he died uh, soon after. So by the time I was getting to Malcolm X, he was fading. So I so I, I didn't get the, the benefit of um, of reading him uh, while Uncle Bobby was alive and, and appreciating it. But God, I wish I had. God, I, I great God, I, I wish I could have studied and learned at Uncle Bobby's feet even more. Um, but I, I didn't get a chance. Um, sorry, I'm just thinking about how much, you know, life is just so fleeting. You just don't know when you're going to get what you get, you know, so mm-hmm. you just got to make the most of it while you can. Um, yeah. and, I, and I got so much from Uncle Bobby. And so rather than be sad about what I didn't get, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to give thanks for what I did, but no, I did. I didn't get a chance to, um, to, to share that book with him. Right. I was just curious. Yeah. All right, you guys, we're going to end on that. Um, again, Mark has a lot of books. I'm going to link to them in the show notes for you. I'm going to link to, of course, uncle Bobby's coffee and bookstore. Uh, I'm going to link to everything we talked about, um, where you can find Mark. 
this was so special and I am just so grateful for you sharing your knowledge. And I kept thinking during this conversation, his students are so lucky and they probably don't even know. They probably <laughs> think like, who's this guy who's so full of shit and knows everything. But they'll think probably. back and be like, oh my God, Mark Lamont Hill was, Professor Hill was so great, you know. Um, but thank you so, so much for being here and sharing your insight with us. Thank you for hanging out with me, man. This is a great podcast. I'm taking notes from my own podcast, so this is dope. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can have me on your podcast. Oh, I'm coming. available to be on. You are okay. coming. Okay. <laughs> <Yay>. <laughs> and everybody else, we will see you in the stacks. Thank you to everyone who read along and listened with us today. I'd also like to say thank you to Mark Lamont Hill for being our guest. And it's now time for the moment you've all been waiting for. Our November book club selection is The Butterfly Effect, How Kendrick Lamar Ignited the Soul of Black America by Marcus J. Moore. We will discuss the book on Wednesday, November 25th. Tune in next week to hear who our guests will be for this conversation. And for now, happy reading. Please make sure you're subscribed to this podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, take a moment to leave a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. Today's episode was edited and produced by Sebastian Alcala. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite, and our theme music is from Tegirigis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.